This is Shine On, the health and happiness show with Casey, an Ella's Leash production. Shine On is a weekly presentation with guests, ideas, information, and fun designed to improve your life from 100.7 WHUD. Hi, it's Casey. Thanks for tuning in today. We're going to travel to the blue zones of happiness. We're going to get fearless and travel deep within our scary selves. And we're going to look at the false beliefs that cause everyday narcissism. Oh, that's coming up. And if you know a people pleaser, stay tuned for that. But first, Dan Butner of the Blue Zones of Happiness. Well, the idea behind this book was to find the statistically happiest places in the world and then reverse engineer and apply it to our lives. So Blue Zones of Happiness is like a blueprint for greater happiness. So there's three kinds of happiness. There's how we evaluate our life, the amount of joy we experience every day, and then our purpose. And those are all measurable. And we find the people with the most purpose-driven lives in northern Denmark, the people with the most life satisfaction in Singapore, and the people who enjoy their lives most day-to-day, moment-to-moment in Cartago, Costa Rica. So those are our all-stars. All right. Well, I can understand why the people in Costa Rica enjoy their lives the most because it's just so beautiful there. That makes sense. Uh, what are the people in northern Denmark doing that give them so much happiness? So in all cases, an enlightened government or enlightened leaders 50 to 100 years ago put into policies that gave everybody as a basic right access to health care, education for children, and especially young mothers so they grow, so they raise great children, and then uh, retirement, so you know you'll be taken care of when you get old. So in Denmark, for example, everybody gets free health care, free education, and a great retirement. They don't really celebrate ambition or status. Uh, you're taxed to the mean, and what that has created is a work environment that people tend to pursue jobs where they get to use their passions. Unlike America, where 70% of us don't like our jobs and we're just showing up for the paycheck. In Denmark, they're doing things like furniture design, architecture, really neat high-tech programming and companies and so forth. They're enjoying their days rather than just calling it in. Okay, what does that mean, taxed to the mean? Well, they have fairly high taxes. So, you know, in in places like Brazil, the top 10% makes 75 times more than the bottom 10%. And it's similar here in the United States. In uh, Denmark, the top 10% only make three times more than the lowest 10%. So working crazy hours and and, uh, doing something you don't necessarily like to do to become a millionaire doesn't pay off as much there because you're going to get taxed to more. People kind of make about the same amount of money. And they have health care, and they have maternity care, and they have retirement care. You know, the thing to realize about money, money does buy happiness until you have the necessities in life. We all need food, shelter, health care, some education. We need mobility. We need to be able to treat ourselves once in a while. But after that, about $75,000 a year, more money does not buy more happiness. And realizing that, and then once you have enough, spending your time doing things that will more dependably deliver happiness, like socializing six hours a day, spending one hour a day doing physical activity so you stay healthy. Volunteering. We know that people around the world who volunteer are happier than non-volunteers. That balancing of your happiness for portfolio is going to deliver dependable happiness. Socializing six hours a day. My goodness. I don't even like people that much. Okay, but here's Uh, the... (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) That's all right, isn't it? No, no. 
Six hours is a lot, Dan. That's a lot. Well, well, I'll tell you where that comes from. That that's not a superfluous. Uh, Gal uh, interviewed 1.5 million people in America, and they uh, they ask questions about happiness, and then they ask questions about how many hours you, you socialize, and they find that the people who report the highest level of happiness are out connecting with people they like and with whom they can have a meaningful conversation five or six hours a day. They're not sitting in traffic or watching TV or sitting on their you know device. Right. They, Right. They, they're doing what we evolved to do, which is connect on a human level. All right. So that is one thing we can do. The Blue Zones of Happiness. Dan Butner is the guest. We can strive to connect more with people if that type of thing makes us happy. That's under our control. But right now, health care and retirement care is not under our control. So what are some of the other things we can do to stay happy or get happy? So essentially, I argue that if you try to change your behavior, your habits, that's a recipe for neurosis. But now we have an ocean of statistics that tell us what we can do to shape our surroundings so we're more likely to be happy. One of the things is when it comes to finance. So we all, we like to buy new things, gadgets and, and coals and so forth. But if you have extra money, if happiness is what you're interested in, you're much better off paying down your mortgage, buying insurance, or signing up for automatic savings plans because financial security lasts for years or decades and the little blip of joy you get from buying a new thing only lasts a few months all right save 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 the blue zone of happiness is there a website to support this book yeah bluezones.com and we even have a true happiness test that will see how you're how diversified or how balanced your portfolio is of happiness and may give you some customized recommendations on how you can get happier I'm going, I'm going to take the test. Thank you so much for the work you do. Have a great day. Great to connect. Take the true happiness test at bluezone.com. Dan Butner, the Blue Zones of Happiness. Connect at casey.co if you want that book. And now, everyday narcissism. What the heck is that? Nancy Van Dyken is the therapist with the answer. Everyday narcissism is a set of core beliefs that we hold to be true that we were taught under the age of five, and they drive our behaviors, our emotions, and our thoughts for the rest of our lives. And they create a lot of pain and heartache. What kind of thoughts? There are five major beliefs. The first belief is I have the power and the responsibility to control how other people feel and behave. And how do we get this feeling? Well, we're taught it. It's passed down from one generation to another. One of my clients told the story of her mother slamming her hand in the car door when she was about five. And, of course, the daughter started crying and screaming. The mother told her, oh, you must not cry and scream. It's just too upsetting to me. So the daughter is five, and the mother is instructing her to take care of her feelings at that moment. That's not an uncommon thing that happens to children. So at that moment, what the child learned was taking care of my mother and her needs was more important than my need to just let out the pain that I was experiencing and get comforted myself. And because the mother was just oh so human and really maybe having a human reaction like, please, you know, it upsets me so much when you cry, the child internalizes that it's her responsibility. So thinking that we need to fix it all. Very good. Well, it's, it's hard, I guess, to escape those kind of injuries. I'm glad you call them injuries because that's exactly what they are. I call them hazy trauma. That's like one paper cut. Mm -hmm. But you keep getting the message. Uh, The little girl who's told to go give grandma a kiss goodbye, and she says, I don't want to. She just hurt my feelings. And the mom or dad say, now go over, give her a kiss goodbye, or she'll feel bad. 
So now the child is four or five, and she's supposed to take care of grandma. And she knows if she doesn't do that, that her mother's going to be upset. Now she has to take care of her mother as well. And her need to say, no, that's not what I want to do, doesn't matter. Taking care of grandma and mother is what matters. And this just gets passed down generation to generation, and there's no bad parents. People are just trying their best. So when that little girl grows up, what does that look like? Well, then she's a pleaser. She has to take care of everybody else. She has to always consider what do other people want. So if she's at work and she's buried in some project and the co-worker comes over and says, can you help me? I'm really far behind. She feels like she has to say yes. Now she's buried with her work and now she's putting that aside and helping someone else because her need to get on top of things doesn't count. Just her colleagues' needs count. Right. And she's terrified of saying no because she's afraid she won't be loved. She's afraid she won't be liked, which is our main drive in life. We just want to be liked and loved. We all just want to be loved and liked and belong. Right. And is it all about boundaries? Some of it is about boundaries, absolutely. Good insight. Well, the second one is if I'm busy taking care of you in the first math, then your job is to take care of me. And if you don't take care of my needs, I might not even know what they are, or I might not even tell you what they are. But if you loved me, you would know what they are. And if you don't take care of me, then I'm going to be upset with you. And this is what goes on in a lot of couples' work. They're both wanting the other person to take care of them and because they've never been taught how to take care of themselves. The fourth myth is rules are more important than I am. So the child who's in a brand new school tells her teacher, I forgot my homework in the locker. Can I take one of the tardies I get and go get it? And the teacher said, yes. However, you'll still get an F because it won't be here when the bell rings. Now, that's where the rule is more important than the rule of the person the rule is supposed to serve. Now, if the child did this about six times, you've got a whole different story. If this occurred in the first two weeks of school in a brand new school, the rule is more important than she was, and she was trying so hard to do it right. And when she grows up, what does that look like? Well, it can play out in a number of ways, but one of them is that, you know, you have to stick to the rules. The rules matter. Find a lot of rigidity in people. I know a guy like that, and it never made sense to me. Like, you know, there's rules at work, of course, but always use your common sense and do what's appropriate for the moment. But I know people who are like, no, this is the rule. So it probably came from a childhood thing. And oh, by the way, all of these can be healed. And I outline homework in my book on how to do it. But the fifth lie that we're told is unless we follow all these myths, we're just not lovable. We're not likable. We're not worthy. So we run around as pleasers and afraid to speak our truth and afraid to set boundaries because we all just want to be loved. We all want to be liked. We all want to have community. Right. So everyday narcissism is what we're talking about with author Nancy Van Dyken, a psychologist and clinical social worker in Minneapolis. So when we hear this term narcissism, this is very different from the narcissist personality that maybe we see on the nightly news. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, everyday narcissism is just a low-grade garden variety form of narcissism where the personality disorder is actual a di- diagnosis. It's like the difference between someone who has a major depression and is hospitalized, maybe on some medication, and a person who says, man, I've had a bad week. I'm just so depressed. There's a huge difference. I'm not writing at all about the personality disorder. I'm just writing about people like you and me and your listeners who just aren't quite happy in life. Yeah, and we can learn a lot about ourselves if we turn out to be the people pleaser or the rigid person with the rules or 
all the different assortments of things that could come up where we're putting ourselves in a role, I guess, that we don't belong in. Yeah, because what we want to do in the book that helps us get there is to get back to our true selves. That wise little girl that says, I don't want to give Grandma a kiss goodbye. She just hurt my feelings. There's a lot of wisdom in that. She's trusting her body. She's allowing herself to feel. She's allowing herself to say who she is. And then she gets rejected for it. So now we're really challenged to go back to that wisdom within us. Because that wisdom will heal us, but we need help in how to get there. Right. The five myths, can you just run them down for us quickly one more time? Number one is I have the power and the responsibility to control how you feel and behave and control your anger, for instance, your sadness. Number two is you have the power and responsibility to control how I feel and behave. Number three is your needs are more important than mine. Number four is rules are more important than I am. And number five is I'm not lovable, likable, worthwhile, worthy, unless I follow all these lies. Nancy Van Dyken, we will open up your book, Everyday Narcissism, Yours, Mine, and Ours, and find the healing because you say all of, you can heal from all of these. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where would we start healing? We have to learn to start trusting that little voice inside us, the wisdom inside us, and we have to take it seriously. We have to understand that we are all valuable just the way we are. We're lovable just the way we are. And that we don't need to heed these myths or these lies in order to deserve love. But learning to listen to that wisdom within. I don't want to. I don't like this. I feel sad. I am angry. There's a lot of wisdom within us that we have learned simply not to listen to. Nancy Van Dyken, Everyday Narcissism, Believing You Have to Do It All and What You Feel Doesn't Matter. Next up, who loves Halloween? Want to do something really spooky? Sit down and shut up and see what bubbles up in your mental cauldron. Leah Guy walks the fearless path, and she says Halloween is the perfect time to go within. Well, most people uh, tend to suffocate their emotions, and then, you know, we're, we're kind of drawn to the, the um, spooky things out in the world, but we're, we run away from the spooky stuff inside of ourselves. So I think if we can kind of use this time to look at what we're really afraid of, which is generally our deep-seated emotions, and just take a few minutes each day, you know, to sit with them and recognize what they are and let them be without trying to fix anything and without trying to run away from them. Okay, but for folks who have stuff buried down deep, how much sitting do they have to do? <laughs> well, you know what? Not that much. Once you sit and or stand or walk or just be present, things start revealing themselves rather quickly, you know, and, and it's our avoidance of them that keeps them feeling so stuck and feeling so large. But once we just accept and listen, um, things, will, things will bubble up really quickly. Okay. What are some of the things we could be stuffing down that we're not realizing? Well, a lot of people stuff down that fear of abandonment, the fear of loneliness, fear that they're not good enough. Those are some really deep-seated issues that come from our childhood, early childhood often. And we just kind of manipulate our worlds around that so we don't, we never have to deal with that intense pain because feeling unaccepted is one of the most painful emotions that we can experience. Of course, grief is another one. We don't want to sit with the grief because that pain is also very raw. So those are two that I, I think people often um, 
you know, they swallow the emotion and try to get rid of it somehow instead of being present to it. Right. And what does getting rid of it somehow look like? Well, it usually means just ignoring it or um, tricking ourselves into believing that we don't have that issue any longer or that emotion any longer. And then it starts showing up. You know, we overeat. We do emotional eating. We um, have anxiety. We can't sleep well. We feel restless during the day. We're unable to focus. Um, Sometimes we have physical symptoms, you know, stomach cramps or shoulder pain. Uh, Emotions live all throughout our body and our cellular tissues and our fat tissues and our memory cells. So it's, it's something we really should pay attention to. Right. So when we sit down on this fearless path and let things bubble up, things like grief or things like not feeling um, enough, then what happens? Well, then we're going to have the actual emotion, which it feels very scary for a lot of people. In fact, you know, there's a lot of people that don't even know how to express their emotion. They've been so trained to not emote. Um, and so it feels terrifying to allow that kind of, you know, it kind of it overtakes us momentarily, or it can. It can feel that way. But this is part of the practice, is trusting ourselves to be able to handle the feeling that comes up and know that that emotion is not going to last forever. Emotions are fluid. They move. But we need to give them time to express themselves. So if we get a wave of grief, we need to just allow ourselves to cry, to think, to write, to scream, to whatever we need to do and allow that to um, be present and come out. That's usually what happens next, but it, it, it's, uh, we get scared because I think people believe that they're going to get not only just overcome, but they're never going to be able to get out of the emotion, like they're going to fall into a deep depression. But what happens is we fall into that depression when we're avoiding all of our emotions because right. we're just kind of stuck in the ruminating of the issue. So on the fearless path... We are going to sit down, we are going to do an inner inventory, we're going to let things bubble up, and we're going to sit with our emotions. And then after we express them and emote them and get them out, however that may be, Yes. Then what happens? Then you have another emotion. It just never ends. (laughs) Hopefully the next one that comes may offer a little relief. You know, we find our balance. We come back to our center. And then we might experience a moment of everything's okay. Or we might experience, wow, I feel really nice right now. Or a, a new kind of sensation because now we have room for those new emotions and so forth. So I, I kind of uh, tell people, you know, the code is sit down, shut up. You know, you don't want to, you don't have to say get into meditation. You don't have to say get into prayer. You don't have to say any kind of, you know, practice in particular. But if we can sit down, be quiet, and just give ourselves a few minutes each day and check in with ourselves and let that emotion express and then the next one will express. And then, then we are emotional beings that aren't, we aren't ruled by our emotions, but we're healthy, we're fluid, we're in the flow, and we allow what comes. That's Leah Guy. She owns Modern Sage Healing Center in New Jersey. If you'd like her book, The Fearless Path, send an email from the website casey.co. Finally today, a confession There are people I have distanced myself from because I do not agree with their way of thinking. And you know what? That's not being fearless, but I need tools. Enter Dr. Donna Markova, who co-wrote 
reconcilable differences. How do we reconcile and how do we start within our families? Because I don't know about you, but I don't know one family system, um, let alone places of work where there's not political differences, ideological differences that feel very fragmented. And um, I just feel like it's a really important time for us all to start with our families because that's the first place we turn when we're, you know, in pain and trouble or even recently with what happened in Vegas or, you know, all this other terribleness in the world. And so we do have to find ways to heal within the family system. We may not get people to change their opinions. So where do we start? We start with our families and we start with opening up our minds to have decent and human and civil conversations. Sometimes they go (laughs) a little awry, but, you know, I think it comes with the intention of, I am not here to change your mind. I'm just here to try and understand you a little bit more. In the book, we talk about three fundamental cardinal rules that we really do need to, you know, each embrace. And they're, you know, you can't change another person, but you certainly can change your capacity to grow and relate and dig in with them. Again, sort of that intention, I'm going to, you know, let's see if we can relate. The other one is I can't make anyone love, respect, or even like me, but I certainly can respect myself and do my best to respect them as I relate to them. And then the third cardinal rule is you really can't prove to the other person that you're right, but you can certainly learn to value one another's differences. And, you know, we wrote those three cardinal rules because I think that we are all starting in the wrong place. We go into these conversations really trying to change the other person or bully them into our opinion, and it just doesn't work. But if we can get to a better place of understanding, that's awesome. Reconcilable differences. We're talking to Angie MacArthur, one of the authors, Decode the Way You Relate and Discover Authentic Understanding, Communication, Learning, and Trust. So tell me, how does a person come to understand how they communicate? You know, we usually just, we, I don't think anybody takes a lot of time to think about how they themselves communicate. Where do we start with that? Well, it's actually simpler than you think. Most of us, when we're aiming to communicate, are, are really looking at the what, the content. What do I want to say to this person? What do I want to prove to them? What we're not looking at is how we are communicating. And we each have biases in this area. So, for example, my co-author, Donna, her bias is to always talk everything through. You know, the moment, and we are family, so we're mother and daughter-in-law. We're also business partners of 22 years. We've traveled around the world working with teams together. And it is has been difficult because our differences are so immense. We have huge age gap. We have differences in how we communicate and um, our thinking process. So her inclination is to want to talk about everything. And I can't go there right away, especially when I'm stressed or especially if I'm like, I don't quite know what I want to say. I'm wrapped up inside, you know, when you get that tension. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's easier to write her and say, here's where I'm challenged, and um, and then, you know, let's have a follow-up conversation about that. You are you know, doing since, all this work with your mother-in-law? Totally. We've written two books together, worked together for 22 years, and when we first met, we were not, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't rainbows and, you know, <laughs> loveliness. It was, you know, there's, you know, and, and that's what I'm saying is relational intelligence or, or what we define as a skill that we so often 
all desperately need is really that ability to relate and connect with those who are different than you through communication, understanding, learning, and trust. And it is a muscle. It does take practice. But what it does is lessen the tension that we have to try. You know, there's a lot of workplaces where you're going to have people who are very different from you right next to you. So if you can't do it in the family place, you're certainly going to be called to do it on the work front. We talk about diversity and and embracing diversity. Well, this is where it starts, right here. That's it. That's exactly it. We talk about embracing diversity, but we don't want to talk to the people who disagree with us. Tell me about the rut stories and the River Stories. What's that all about? Well, this is fascinating. This is really around um, the strategy we call trust. You know, when we say, I just don't trust them, or she doesn't, you know, she's not worthy of my trust. What's really interesting is that we've all made up stories in our head about why we shouldn't trust that person. Some of it may be true, but, you know, we all have different characteristics which we attribute to trust. So for, you know, one person, accuracy would be the most important characteristic that would display trust. Data. Another person, it may be reliability. So part of this is that we need to break down how each of us are, are with the lens with which we're looking at trust. The other piece is the stories we're telling ourselves, rut or river stories. Let's say I observe my husband doing something and I'm a little bit baffled by it. And if I tell myself the rut, you know, the rut story that, oh, he's just out to, you know, aggravate me today or he's putting his needs before mine or whatever that rut story is, I've already convinced myself from a very small piece of data, and maybe that piece of data is he didn't call me when I asked him to, or something like that, I've already created a rut story around that, meaning a negative story, a Mm -hmm. story that is going to take us into a place of rut. And we do this all the time. Author Rick Hansen, who wrote um, great books on happiness, calls this, you know, our natural negativity bias, which we, we all have. It's part of our survival technique. The other option is to create a river story, which is a story of possibility and connection. I mean, the reality is, is that our brains are these immense imagination. I mean, anyone who says they're not a creative person, all you have to do is tell them, what stories are you telling yourself? And you'll see how imaginative we are. And so every day there's thousands of these incidences with people at the workplace and our family systems in which we we see, observe, you know, notice something or get something in writing and we'll quickly create a story about that. So in order to build trust, it's really important to say, am I telling myself a river story about this or am I telling myself a rut story? So you know you're telling yourself a rut story when it leads to an unhappy ending and a river story can flow to a place of peace and understanding. Use your imagination to create river stories. Connect at Casey.co if you want this book, Reconcilable Differences, which leads us to today's thought for the day. We talk about embracing diversity, but we don't want to talk to the people who disagree with us. Who said that? I did. About five minutes ago, and I surprised myself, and I showed myself my own rut story. I learned so much from this Shine On show. Catch a podcast anytime on iTunes or SoundCloud or Casey.co. Have a great week. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show with Casey, an Ella's Leash production. The content of Shine On, the health and happiness show is intended for general information purposes only. You can listen to previously broadcast shows online at casey.co. That's K-A-C-E-Y dot C-O. 
Join KC for another edition of Shine On, the health and happiness show, next Sunday morning, right here on 100.7 WHUD.